Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, March 22nd, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim continues the history of the Tower of Terror attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks, if you could go back to medieval times and give a peasant one food item and one drink, what would they be? It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Are we talking medieval times, the place in Kissimmee off of Vine? No, 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 no. Like actually back in, in time, like to the 1400s. Okay. <laughs> my mistake. Because my immediate thought is eating with your hands is very overrated. So I, I would give the peasant knife and a fork and a lot of wet naps. <laughs> so Hannah asked me this question, which is where I came up with it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when, I, when I hesitated thinking about it, she said, I would give them a Taco Bell spicy Doritos taco and a four loco. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, Hannah may have been the intense child of the brood there. Well, no, actually, to be honest, Hannah is not entirely wrong. I mean, I, you know, if it were me just this week with the return of the quesalupa, the unholy marriage between a chalupa and a quesadilla. No. Oh, it's, it's a heaven sent food that, that hasn't been a Taco Bell in six years and it's bad. So hand that to the peasant and and maybe a mango iced tea. A mango iced tea, yeah. yeah so Hannah's point was that the spicy Doritos taco was probably more seasoning than that peasant would have in the entire rest of their life. A genius child. You have a genius child. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. Speaking of geniuses, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Action Jim, Valencia Joe, Malin04008. Jackie MW81 and Ruby's Brisket. And the longtime subscribers AV3206, Mama Polina, Bairdster, and Communicor West. Jim, these are the folks who proposed a gondola ride for the Italy Pavilion in Epcot based on the films of Federico Fellini. It had no story and no plot, but it did include sets such as Sophia Loren conducts a marching band and Marcello Mastroianni makes pizza for a circus. True story. That's a great idea. I do have a, a, a fondness for Fellini films. In fact, it, the greatest film poster I've ever seen, that there's a Fellini film called And the Ship Sailed On. The bottom of the, the poster is lined with these outrageous characters from the film. We need more Fellinis. <laughs> I ended up having to watch uh, film trailers for that particular segment, but uh, it was it was very different. And I think yeah. Sophia Loren was in one of them. So. Could be. So it wasn't, be. wasn't bad. Yeah. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, the big news, Disneyland has an official opening date now. It's April 30th. I'm hearing the initial capacity for that park. It's going to be, give or take, 10,000 people, mm. which is very low. Right? It is. It is. But but again, you got to walk before you can run. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Governor Newsom would prefer somebody else not run for his job. We're finally here. We're finally at this moment. Can you imagine what the reservation system is going to be like to get Disneyland tickets? for? It can make Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome <laughs> looks like <laughs> Barney's Day in the Park. If I can mix theme parks and metaphors there. It's the happiest place on earth. Remember that when you're getting frustrated. I'm thinking low-level skydiving into like Fantasyland where you can sort of like pull like a D.B. Cooper and end up in the trees and sort of like run away before people can find you. 
Should I be saying this in public? No, probably not. No, no, no. no, no. Nobody heard anything. Nobody heard anything. <laughs> I would bury the needle in the other way. I would apply for a job. That's probably an easier way to get into the bar. <laughs> that's true. All right. oh, I hope our uh, cast member friend Miriam gets uh, gets her job back. It'll be good. That'll be cool. Yes. Other uh, interesting news. Uh, Disney Cruise Line announced its 2022 itineraries. It looks like the dream is moving to Miami probably making room for the wish in Port Canaveral is what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking here, Jim, is mm-hmm. the the wish and the fantasy mm-hmm. will be primarily based out of Port Canaveral because that's where the money is. And those are the fanciest ships mm-hmm. and the most in-demand ships with the, with the most expensive itineraries. Does that make sense? It works for me, but I'm, I'm kind of intrigued as to the dream in Miami, though. Well, you can do Western Caribbean from there. You can do Eastern Caribbean. Mm-hmm. You can do the standard three and four night cruises to Castaway Key and to the Bahamas. So it gives them a little bit more access to the standard things that the dream is going to do. Mm-hmm. You can also do Southern Caribbean uh, from that. Okay. I have to do a bit more research, I guess, on the port setup in Miami. They've gone out of there before, right? Or yeah. I've gone out of Miami before. I can't remember whether it was on Disney or not. Hmm. I think it was. The one thing I remember is one of my trips out of Miami coincided with the day that Miami was running its marathon. And so we had to, it took like, we intentionally stayed like three blocks Mm -hmm. from the cruise terminal, Mm -hmm. but it ended up taking an hour and a half to get there with traffic (laughs) because we got diverted. Should have walked. Should have walked. (laughs) <laughs> Nothing starts off a cruise experience like that level of stress. Okay. Yeah. Should have walked. I uh, didn't. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Also saw the largest iguana I've ever seen in the wild in the parking lot of the Miami Cruise Terminal, which, again, Miami's in the tropics. So, yeah. fine. You could have ridden him it was, to the it terminal. Was, I think the conversation that Laurel and I had was, when does an iguana become a monitor lizard? Like, what's the size Remember that conversation you know I had about when does a cupcake become a cake? It was that conversation. Like, okay. don't make eye contact with it. Just don't look at it. Yeah. You know, I guess when it moves from carrying off Shih Tzus to St. Bernard's, then, okay, you're a monitor <laughs> lizard now. I was placating it by saying, didn't I see you in Godzilla? You were fabulous. There you oh, go. anyway. Then we ran the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of other updates. Uh, a couple of people have asked us, what uh, what's the deal with Rise of the Resistance? Literally, like, where is it in terms of capacity? So mm-hmm. I sent... Our intrepid researcher Christina over to Disney's Hollywood Studios to count people coming out of Rise of the Resistance for an hour. She counted 1,048 people in one hour. That was about 20 boarding groups, so 52 people per boarding group. And so that means that if there's 160 boarding groups in a day, there's around 8,340 people per day that can ride Rise of the Resistance. My guess is that's about half the number of people who are in the studios for the day. Mm. So discounting people who don't want to ride rise or infants who can't ride rise, you know, your odds of getting a boarding group are probably 60 ish percent for us. Not, not great. Not great, but certainly better than early on. Yeah. And then we have listener questions, Jim. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark writes in with another example of the free fall ride that we're talking about as a predecessor to tower of terror. He says, we had a free fall ride here at six flags, great America in Gurney. It had what I thought I remembered as a significant accident, but apparently the kids weren't seriously injured. I remember it because I wrote it just a couple of weeks before the accident. I remember waiting a long time for it, uh, which I now understand was due to low ride capacity. Something I didn't think about then, but I fully understand now, thanks to you. Mark also says the accident happened in 1984, and they tore it down in 1986 due to low ridership. And Mark says he also passed it up riding it again on later visits 
because of the bad publicity. Curiously, they didn't dismantle the ride. They just moved it a couple of times before they got rid of it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Also, Mark mentioned uh, sometime down the road, he's going to get me to go fishing with him in Epcot. We're going to have this ongoing conversation about uh, doing bass fishing on, uh, on Bay Lake or Seven Seas Lagoon. If the bass are smart, they're moving to the, the harmonious structure now because nobody's getting anywhere near that. Yeah, exactly. Also, Jim, uh, Travis in Cleveland writes in with this. Hi, Jim and Len. My family just got back from our first visit to Disney World since reopening, and I was fascinated by the efforts by Disney to space out the lines. It got me thinking back to my queuing course in business school, and I was hoping Len could nerd out on us a little bit. It occurred to me the lines, while longer, moved much faster and more steadily than in normal times. This has to be expected with the spacing reducing bunching. Are there any operational benefits to this increased spacing that could entice Disney to keep some elements of this model even after restrictions are lifted? It definitely improves the guest experience, but I'm curious if it improves anything for ride ops as well. Yeah, so this is interesting. I, you, you know I've talked about this on a, mm-hmm. a couple of times, Jim, how I think the psychological benefits of feeling like you're constantly moving in line outweigh the fact that the line appears to be longer, like physically longer, right? It is. And, and you know, whether Disney could, could retain that. I think in terms of operations, one thing that Disney doesn't have to worry about now is filling in every available seat in every row, right? They're not trying to fit in single riders mm-hmm. on ride vehicles. And that means that they can probably dispatch the ride vehicles a little bit faster. You're not getting as much throughput, mm-hmm. but there may be uh, enough offset in the uh, faster dispatches to more than make up for that. That's my guess, right? So imagine you have to wait like an extra 10 or 15 seconds mm-hmm. to get that one extra rider in a ride vehicle. That's 10 or 15 seconds delay that you could have sent another ride vehicle along. And is that worth one extra person? I mean, if you do it often enough and you could do it faster than that, maybe, but my sense is probably not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I like the socially distant lines. I think the next step from, for Disney though is, um, is going to be going from six feet to three feet. And we'll see then what happens with um, from six feet between guests to three feet between uh, groups to see what happens. It's um, so interesting to say that because the, the New York Times today was just talking about how this, the third, three feet versus six foot thing is being applied to schools right now. Yeah, I, I think we get as, as we get more vaccinations, it'll it'll go down to three feet, and then eventually it'll be normal. It might not go to three; it might go to four, mm-hmm. but it's going to go six to something. Mm-hmm. I just recently was following somebody on Twitter, and they were talking about when they saw the line for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, they were like, "Oh no, God no." But they still got in it, and it was one of these things where it moved so quickly that it was, was yeah. startling. But again, I would be intrigued by the number of guests in the parks who look at the artificially longer lines and think, ah, no, and miss out on you know some real opportunities here. So we're actually seeing this, and it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, number one is Disney's artificially inflating the wait times, or they're, they're just not estimating them well. Mm-hmm. And two the lines stretch out to places that people have never seen lines before. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing this with our lines app. And I'll give you an example, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before that. We got a, I got a text from someone who was getting in line at Big Thunder. Mm-hmm. And the line for Big Thunder went all the way out Big Thunder, back in front of Splash Mountain, went over the, the little hill in front of Splash Mountain, you know, where you mm-hmm. look out to see people coming down the hill, doubled back around and went to Tom Sawyer Island. <laughs> And the posted wait, I forget, was like, you know, 70 minutes or something crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and we had said, we estimated the line at 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so somebody texted me and said, look, 
there's no way it's 15 minutes. For, you know, I'm standing here. What are you, you know, what are you thinking? You need to look at this. I'm like, okay, you know, get in line and time in the line. And if it's, mm-hmm. if it's, you know, really off, I'll buy you lunch. Mm-hmm. And then he texted me later on and said it was 14 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. They basically never stopped walking. Holy. So, uh, yeah, but we get that. We get it all the time from mm-hmm. people. Yeah, so that's the one thing that Disney has to be concerned with, right? People are going to bulk and not get in a line. I think if the posted wait times were accurate, people wouldn't care as much Mm -hmm. about where the line started. You'd still get some people who would say, I don't believe this is a 15-minute line if Mm -hmm. I'm standing back at Thompson Island, Mm -hmm. right? But they would feel better about getting in the line knowing that it's not 70. It's, you know. What's the worst case? It's going to be, you know, 25. Mm-hmm. No, that, that yeah, certainly makes sense. But yeah, you have so many people who are Disney World veterans and they see a line like that and it's like, I, I don't have three hours to waste. And it's like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, that's not a three hour line. You're in a different world. Yep. We, uh, we've actually had to put people in lines to time it just to make sure that we were right too, which is, which is kind of interesting. So, mm. all right. Another email uh, from Mike in Perth, Scotland. Uh, he says, can you get to the bottom of what's happening at Disneyland Paris? The planned expansion pre-pandemic was a much-needed boost for a beautiful park. But what's the latest on it now, post or in the pandemic? Please help me. You're my only hope. Keep up the fantastic work and say hi to Jim and the team for me. So Jim, Mike in Perth says uh, says hi. Also, Mike, if you could email us and let us know what you call your meals throughout the day, <laughs> I'd greatly appreciate that. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, Jim, what's, uh, what's going on with Disneyland Paris? Uh, Third park, right? What he's referring to, of course, is the expansion that was announced back in February of 2018. Two billion euro multi-year expansion. We were supposed to have uh, Avengers Campus open by 2022, which would be reminiscent of you know what we're getting at DCA. Uh, following in 2024, we were going to get a Frozen Land with a, a Village of Arendelle, in, which would have included a uh, 300 or excuse me, a 131 foot tall mountain with uh, Elsa's Ice Palace about halfway up. This would have been built on the, the far side of a lake, which is where Walt Disney Studios Paris would be staging its nighttime shows with a certain system that would look very familiar to Epcot fans. And then finally, in 2025, they were supposed to get their Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But again, here comes COVID in March of of last year. In April of 2020, Laurent Brazzer of uh, Euro Disney said that work scheduled on the expansion of Walt Disney Studios has stopped. It has not resumed, but it is not canceled. And sure enough, work began again in the fall. In fact, in December, we began to see some pretty decent photos of the the redo of the backstage tram tour, which is now becoming the Cars Route 66 road trip, which, if you love Catastrophe Canyon, is, is the same thing, only Mac the truck. Problem is... Starting in January, Disneyland Paris began talking up how the park would be reopening on April 2nd. This is a park that opened in July, had to close again in October due to a second resurgence of COVID. With the thinking in October was it was going to reopen in February, but then they punted right. to April. And meanwhile, you know, we're getting dates of like, you know, for example, March 8th is when the Hotel New York, the Art of Marvel, Back in August, they were like, that's, you know, we're, we're going to do our reopening. But just this week, Disneyland Paris has indefinitely delayed its April 2nd opening again to a third. Yeah, there's a resurgence of uh, the virus in, yeah. uh, 
in Europe, yeah. Yeah. I have reached out to friends at the resort. I've reached out to friends at Imagineering. And basically what I'm being told is everything is on track. The problem is, of course, that the dates have been pushed. They've had to pull construction teams out. They were hoping to have Avengers Campus open this summer. That's probably not going to happen, though the folks at Imagineering are really excited about this because given the craziness associated with WandaVision, you know, what that's done to Marvel fandom, and today is when uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier drops, if anything, there will be that much more pent-up demand for Avengers Campus. The most intriguing bend on the expansion of Walt Disney Studios Paris is what's happening with Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which again is the furthest out. And remember that Mm -hmm. that that was discussed as 2025. The thinking, especially on the heels of how Batu has done at Disneyland and, and Hollywood Studios, is that they're still planning on doing a Rise of the Resistance type ride. Uh, likewise, you know, a Millennium Falcon type experience. But the thinking is on the heels of the success of The Mandalorian and what they anticipate in regard to the book of Boba Fett, that this one will be dialed in a little tighter. It won't be necessarily the loose construct that we have in Florida. You know, the, the idea of this planet we've never been to before. Oh, okay. So it'll be a, it'll be a more definitive planet. They had just not anticipated that the Mandalorian would have this level of response. And likewise, bringing Boba Fett onto the canvas there and people losing their minds, it's the effect of what we saw in the Mandalorian was Boba Fett moving into Jabba's old palace. Right, at the end of, uh, the end of season two. Maybe we're going to get to go to some place we really have wanted to go to before i'm just putting that out there because remember the initial plan for disney's hollywood studios was was tatooine and it was kathleen kennedy who talked the imagineers out of that arguing that you know we don't necessarily want to be looking back at star wars past we want to be looking to star wars future and what's interesting in chatting with with imaginary friends today is like the beauty of Star Wars Future is we're going to some place we've been to in the past. So <laughs> everybody gets what they want, Jim. Everybody gets what Management they want. Management gets to claim a win. Fans are happy. There you it's go. But good. again, that's 2025. That's like 15 years away, right? <laughs> yes, particularly in Disneyland Paris. Years. Would even is time. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the history of Disney's Tower of Terror. So we're continuing our history of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Now, the last couple of episodes, we've talked about how it was going to go into Euro Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. And if we back up the truck, December of 85, Walt Disney Production hadn't even selected a site for its European park yet. I, I've got this document I just got off of eBay. It's called the Team Disney 85 Continuing Tradition Report. And in this report, they'd say that we have made the selection of countries for this park has narrowed to two, France and Spain. Factors such as climate, vacation, and travel trends, and the economy are being carefully considered before a decision is made. In the same report, they mentioned that Walt Disney production as of fall of 85 was to increase the studio's feature film production to 12 to 15 films a year. Specifically, they wanted to do 10 to 12 touchstone films and then three to four new family pictures each year. 
Problem then, teeny tiny lot in Burbank, only a handful of sound stages, so ramping up film production wasn't really uh, you know, uh, going to be possible there, especially when you factor in you know, the California unions. So May of 85, uh, just eight months after Michael Eisner becomes Disney CEO, the company announces they are going to be building a third major attraction in Florida, a working movie studio that will give guests a, a chance to glimpse animated features as well as TV shows being made. And here's the pertinent quote from the, the Sentinel article about this announcement. Dick Nunes, who at the time was the executive vice president in charge of the company's theme parks, Michael said, heck, if we have to add sound stages, let's put them in Florida. And then December 18th of that same year, Walt Disney Productions makes a formal decision. They choose France over Spain. And that's where the Euro Disney project is going to go. Now, I bring this up as part of the Tower of Terror series, because I, people, I, I want people to understand that these two projects, the Disney MGM Studio Tour and Euro Disney, were pretty much in development at the exact same time. All right, so there's a lot of cross-pollination going on. People who work in the model shop on, on Hollywood Boulevard section of MGM would look across at the model that was being built for Discovery Mountain and go, what's the deal with the structural steel thing thickening up out of Discovery Mountain? And the manager would go, oh, well, that's, that's our version of Magic Mountain's free fall. People are going to get a brief glimpse of the park and then fall back in Discovery Mountain. And people working on Disney MGM Mountain, well, that sounds like a cool idea for a ride. The thing is that Disney MGM is just a theme park, whereas Euro Disney is an entire resort. So right. Disney MGM gets built faster, opens sooner. That's May 1st, 89. Euro Disney doesn't open until almost three years later on April 12, 1992. Right off the bat, MGM is in trouble capacity-wise. That opening summer, they had colossal lines, you know, lines for people just to get in lines. Yeah, this is, uh, this is before... Tower of Terror, it's before Rock and Roller Coaster. Oh, it's before everything. I mean, hell, you know. They basically got stage shows, which you have to queue up for. Yeah. Star Tours didn't open with the No, actually, eight months after. It it opened December 15th, 89. And and even then, that attraction, which had six simulators as opposed to the four in California, it's just a band-aid and a heart attack. Yeah. So to meet guest demands, MGM has to expand and fast, which is why the managers took that summer's hit film, Summer of 89, and this was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which released the theaters June uh, 23rd, 89, and Fast Track developed a kids' play area for the studios based on that Joe Johnson film. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids' movie set adventure opens at Disney MGM December 17th, 1990, immediate hit. And so this then becomes the managers' plan. So were, were the only two rides when MGM opened the great movie ride in the Backlot Tour? Were those the only two ride That's rides? That's it. One of the reasons that, for example, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movie set adventure was built where it was built is remember, you rode that backstage tour. That backstage tour was like two and a half hours. Yeah, the whole thing. You couldn't get off. You couldn't uh, You couldn't leave it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got off in the backstage area, did the, the Acme Gag Factory, and then had to begin the walking tour portion. Yeah. And there were they put bathrooms there, and then I think there was just a little little place for kids to play. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, just, it, it was a park that really had to find its own way. And it needed money to be able to... To expand. And what the Imaginators quickly found out is that if they based attractions or proposed attractions for MGM that were based on Disney's summer blockbusters, and in this case, we're talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was released to theaters in, in June of 88. And if we look ahead to the summer of 1990 and the summer of 1991, uh, we have Dick Tracy and we have The Rocketeer. And so... <laughs> 
<laughs> We're gonna do lands based on who framed Roger Rabbit, which I can I can see. Mm -hmm. Dick Tracy and the Rocketeer. Well, the, the, but the thing is, if you actually look at the original plan for Sunset Boulevard, it was going to be comprised of, of three lands. They were it's going to be the docks. So the docks area was going to be where Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers was located, which was basically a drive-through shooting gallery. Uh, I think the Indiana Jones uh, adventure only at each guest as they're getting on the troop carrier is handed a Tommy gun. I, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> you have my attention, Jim. Go ahead. When this project didn't happen, and we'll get to why it didn't happen, they still wanted to build it. The managers still wanted to build it. And so when they were initially proposing Disney Seas to the Oriental Land Company, they actually brought the executives of the company over with their wives. And do, as they were doing the presentation, they took the executives and their wives over to Tahunga, where they had actually set up an entire room from Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. And what they did was, now mind you, they'd have to reset it each time. But mm -hmm. what they do is they put people in the ride vehicle, which would then drive into a warehouse where a bunch of bootleggers fighting against bootleggers. And so they would drive into the room and you'd lean out with the Tommy gun and the room was set up all practically. So if you aimed your Tommy gun at, say, a bunch of barrels across the room and shot it with the infrared, they would then begin leaking. Or if you shot at bottles, they would seem to explode. Oh, nice. And the thing is, they took the Oriental executives through and they enjoyed it. But the moment that the Imagineers to this day discusses the wives of the executives, you know, went in after their husbands and they so enjoyed working with the Tommy guns, they rolled back into the offload area. It's like, can we do that again? <laughs> and it's like, well, we have to reset the room. It's going to take about a half hour, 45 minutes. It's like, we'll wait. You know, and it's just <laughs> sort of, We've, we've got time. <laughs> we've got time. We love that. But yeah, no, that, that was going to be in the docks area. Maroon Studios was going to be your departure point. Oh, there was actually going to be one dark ride inside of Maroon Studios, the Baby Herman Runaway Buggy Rides. And then the idea was you would then get on Gus the bus and then journey to Toontown on Toontown Transit, which was going to be basically yet another version of Star Tours, Body Wars. You know, you were in a, a, oh, okay. a simulator base. On the other hand, Sunset Boulevard proper, you were supposed to have the red cars from a Roger Rabbit running up and down the streets servicing it, an idea that eventually did come to life when DCA got DCA, it, yeah. its redo. But the more intriguing thing is in the middle of Sunset Boulevard land was going to be the South Seas Club. If you remember the movie Rocketeer, there's a point in the film where they actually go to a supper club in Hollywood and there's a big band and there's a singer on stage. And this is what they wanted to build on Sunset Boulevard. People want to have that glamorous Hollywood experience. And to a lesser extent, they do get that at the Brown Derby, but this was going to move it to the very next level. So these three lands, very expensive proposition. People forget this, but in July of 1990, America plunged into a very short-lived recession. I mean, it only lasted eight months, uh, effectively wrapped up in March of 1991. But I've got documents from the park that talk about how attendance at Walt Disney World during that eight-month period plunged by 13%. That was enough to, uh, coupled with the fact that Dick Tracy really didn't do the numbers that they had hoped during the summer of 1990. And so suddenly the Imagineers are being asked to rethink Hollywood Boulevard. And, and one of the other issues here is that Steven Spielberg and Disney have a falling out at this exact same moment over Roger uh -huh. Rabbit. And so suddenly 
Roger Rabbit is off the table to be used in a theme park. And then the following summer, in summer of 91, the Rocketeer, it didn't do the business. Let's not forget about the Gulf War as well from August of 1990 through February of 1991. So you, you have Sunset Boulevard built around these three IPs that have suddenly become very shaky. You have, you know, a reception that happened that lower attends the park. And you have the Gulf War making international travel a little problematic. And all that, that comes to mind is that, that that wonderful moment out of Muppet Vision 3D where, you know, Sam is talking about, it's a glorious three-hour-old you know, three finale. And, and Kermit said, you got a minute and a half. And it's just, this is the tenor of the meeting with the Imagineers where on Sunset Boulevard, where they just basically lay it out. It's like Spielberg's being a jerk about Roger Rabbit. Dick Tracy and Rocketeer didn't do, do the business. You had a budget of $350 million to build this entire street and all of its its lands were cutting on that in half. And not only that, you can't use any of these IPs. Wow. But we've already talked up that it's going to be a street, you know, that's filled with authentic shops and restaurants. So you need to come up with something at the end of the street to make people walk to the end of it, having seen all of these shops and these restaurants. And it, it it's at this point, Len, that they're flying blind. They're literally building a street that leads to nowhere, which is when... Somebody at WDI would say, wait a minute, that freefall thing for Euro Disney that was supposed to be built for phase two of that park, we still have access to that, right? And it's like, well, yeah, you know, we've already made a deal for the ride system. And so the Imagineers said, okay, so what if we put that at the end of the street? And it's like, well, that's a little naked unto itself. It's like, okay, so we put it in a building. We put it in a hotel. We, this is where this comes from, that this, this moment of desperation where it's, okay, it's an empty hotel because it's got to be empty. We don't have yep. a whole lot of money. Oh, is that why it's empty? It's, that's why it's empty, Len. Oh, it's like, I always thought the lobby, the lobby, uh, hotel lobby was kind of short. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a <laughs> lot of reasons. There's a lot of things that are short there. <laughs> okay, right. That makes more sense. But I mean, they, they spent a lot on the lavish grounds. I mean, the grounds look good. Well, yeah, yeah but that's the interesting thing about plants. You, you go to the tree plants farm. Cheap. And, give me that, <laughs> give me that, give me that. But construction has to begin in 1992. So here, here's the pertinent article from the Orlando Sentinel, September 7th, 1992. An expansion of Disney's studio theme park is about 18 months behind schedule. Eisner said back in 1990 as part of his Disney Decades announcement that MGM Studios Park would double its capacity with new shows and a, a new street called Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is set to open on schedule in 1994 and will be lined with shops and restaurants reminiscent of Hollywood in its heyday. At the end of Sunset Boulevard, Disney now plans to build the Tower of Terror, a thrill ride that will feature a runaway elevator that free falls 13 stories. Scheduled to open in, in 1994, this attraction will be located inside of a deserted Hollywood hotel at the end of Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> With an unusually small lobby. There you go. All right. Because that's the way those things were built back in the 30s. So again... You have to stretch your $175 million to cover your thrill ride and your street and your shops. Oh, is that why we ended up with basically kiosks as restaurants? Uh, 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> it all makes sense now, Jim. It all makes sense. Now, at this point, the managers have no idea what's going inside of the deserted hotel. The outside of guests plummeting to their death. So not a great place to be if you're an Imagineer, facing a hard and fast deadline, and you're still groping for a story to tell. We talked about cross-pollination uh, kind of between MGM and Euro Disney. This is when they remember, wait a minute. Horror film veteran Vincent Price. Still alive at this point. He is still alive. Uh, and what are the like? Right. He's just recorded the English narration for Phantom Manor. And so the thinking is, well, maybe you could do the same thing with Tower of yeah. Terror. So, and, and here's the thing that, that's kind of ingenious because they're like, well, we're calling the street Sunset Boulevard. So have you seen the Billy Wilder film, Sunset Boulevard? I have not. Okay. It's basically about the crazy, uh, you know, silent film actress, Norma Desmond, who ends up killing a guy, you know, shooting him, and he, 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 they, the police find his body in the pool. So it's the notion, okay, so what if we have a murderous person from the silent film era? This is the storyline initially that they're putting together. Using, again, Sunset, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, you know, as the leaping off point. A famous film director from Hollywood's silent era gets left behind as Tinseltown transitions to sound. Ten years later, in 1938, the Hollywood elite are having a lavish party at the Tower Hotel to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the advent of sound pictures. Okay. But at this party, guests are getting picked off one by one by some masked fiend. So the guests learn about the stories. They're making their way through the queue. And this is largely thanks to the narration that Vincent Price has recorded. Okay. We then board an elevator that's supposedly going to take us up to the tip top club, the scene of the most recent murder. But as we reach the top of the elevator shaft, the safety lights in the, the elevator kick on and we look up and there overhead is the silent film director with a pair of like garden shears and, oh. and he's cutting the cable to our elevator. And he literally, it's like, you know, cut and we now plummet. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it is. It is. But again, we, we plummet down to the bottom of the shaft. You know, and again, like every story we've told so far about this, Freefall-based attraction, emergency brakes kick on at the last possible moment, and we're saved. So the Imaginators take pitch this idea to Eisner, who basically says, meh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a, to, to, to Michael's way of thinking, modern-day theme park goers aren't going to care about the silent film era. It's too far gone at that point that they aren't going to care. Uh, coupled with the fact that at this point, Vincent Price is 81. He's not in the greatest health. In fact, he, he would pass away the following year on October 25th, 1993 due to lung cancer. So using Vincent Price as a narrator for the Tower of Terror just wasn't going to work out. Eisner did have another suggestion when it came to a possible narrator, host of the, the Tower of Terror, uh, one that really threw the Imagineers for a loop. But Len, we will get to how we went from Mel Brooks to Rod <sighs> Serling. As the host of this MG, uh, Disney MGM Thrill Ride next week, as we conclude this Disney Just series. If I ever meet Mel Brooks, my only question to him is going to be, tell me about the Tower of Terror ride. <laughs> Does he live in New York? I got I to gotta find him. Well, no, he's, he's, he's out in California, though, seriously, if you want to get these stories, Floyd Norman is still with us. And Floyd tells these, these wonderful stories about how he would, was working at Disney Studios at the time, and he found out 
when Mel Brooks would go to lunch when he was on the Disney lot. And he would deliberately time, you know, time to go to lunch because Mel's going to be down there holding yep. court. And Mel would get his, his food and again go out and sit on the patio and hold court for an hour to an hour and a half. And, and, and Floyd said he heard more great Hollywood stories from Mel out there. He's someone we should talk to. Uh, we should also maybe talk to Craig McNair Wilson because he, he was actually working with Mel on this project in a hotel Mel before it all went south, and which we'll talk about on next week's show. That's fantastic. I can't wait to hear this. Mm -hmm. um, we've referenced the Mel Brooks thing. Yep. A couple of times, but we've never dove into it. So this is going to be a, a huge treat. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it, it, it. It's great stories, but then the pivot to Rod Serling is interesting too. All right. I can't wait. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the single best podcast we've ever done. We present the earliest known version of Epcot's American Adventure script with real actors, music, and special effects. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be giving guitar lessons for John Lee Hooker's songs, including Boom Boom and other classics, at the 15th annual Chi-Town Blues Festival on Saturday, September 18th, 2021, at the venue at Horseshoe Arena in beautiful downtown Hammond, Indiana. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.